So I had a couple of things happen this week that were kind of interesting. I was in Proverbs, and then Ron Dart said something that rang my chimes. I'm not going to do what he did with it, but it sort of got me thinking. The reading in Proverbs was Proverbs 8, 22-31. And this is talking about wisdom. The Lord possessed me. Me, in this case, is wisdom personified. So the me is wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding in water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its field, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him, like a master workman. Here we go. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. That delighting in the children of man is what grabbed me. And as we're reading numbers, we have... Well, silver bolt, all this kind of stuff. Repeat. Why? The whole book of Numbers is like that. Why? And the answer to that is God loves people. And he delights in hearing their names read. He delights in seeing the things that they have done. And he lists them, each one. I mean, he could have said, all right, there's 12 tribes. Each one of them brought this much. Boom. Two paragraphs. We're done. He could have done that. But he didn't. And as we go through the rest of the book of Numbers, you're going to see more of this, this endless repetition of names. And that's because God delights in his people. He loves people. Satan hates people. Now, the thing Ron Dart said that just rang my chimes was Adam was not a prisoner in Eden. And so Adam voluntarily chose to leave the garden. Eve didn't do it voluntarily. She messed up. And as I've said many times before, because she'd obviously changed when she ate of the befruited fruit. It was entirely possible for Adam to say, Whoa, babe, you're in big trouble. I got more ribs. You take off. That would have been entirely possible for him to do, but he didn't. And it specifically says in Timothy, Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Now, this is where the interesting part is. The knowledge of good and evil is knowledge of good and bad. We think of evil as being nefarious, something that is done intentionally. That's not what it means biblically. It just means adversity. Sometimes it can be adversity that's caused by nefarious means, but other times it just can be bad stuff. Adam was in a perfect environment. All he had to do was tend the flowers. Had all the fruit that he wanted to eat. Companionship with God. He was in the presence of God. And he chose to leave that place to a place of decay and death. On purpose. Now, pop-up level. Yeshua was with the Father at the creation. 
and before the creation. Yeshua chose to leave a place of perfection to go to a place of decay and death on purpose. That's why Paul says, by the way, that Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Because both of them voluntarily chose to leave a perfect place for a place of difficulty in order to rescue someone they loved. Adam wasn't a prisoner in Eden. And Eden was a special place. The world outside of Eden was different. The world outside of Eden was a place where bad stuff happens. Inside the garden, there wasn't any bad stuff happening. So what he did is he chose to leave a place where no bad stuff happened to a place where bad stuff was going to happen. And oh, by the way, if you go into that place, you are subject to be dead at some point. Both Adam and Yeshua knew that. That by going out of the garden, out of heaven, they were going to a place where there was going to be death. Their death. Their personal death. Both of them did that to redeem someone they loved. Remember I started off with God loves people. He enjoys these lists. We're sitting there, how many more silver bowls are we going to have here? God enjoys it. He had it written down. And as I say, when he goes through the numbers and numbers people, it's because these are my people. I like my people. I delight in my people. I want to count them. I want to see them. Now, this business of knowing good and bad, this world that both Adam chose to go into and Yeshua chose to go into, it's a world of good and bad. The place they left, there was no bad. So now they're going into a place where there's good and bad. There is beauty. There is decay. There is death. All of those things are in this place where we are. Satan is one who tries to make things ugly and depressing. God provides us with all the beauty around us. Somebody said in the prayers this morning, Wow, this is really kind of a beautiful spring. More beautiful than average. God does that. As I am very fond of saying, based on what we did, you could say we deserve nothing but low gray skies and oatmeal with no sugar. God doesn't do that to us. God gives us all of this incredible beauty that is around us. Satan, on the other hand, tries to make things ugly because focusing on ugly is depressing. And by the way, our society right now is focused on ugly. I mean, we have a whole month this month dedicated to ugly. Have you looked at some of these people that are proud of being whatever? Most of them are ugly, intentionally so. Not that they were born ugly, they have made themselves ugly on purpose. And it's sort of an in-your-face ugly. I'm ugly and I'm in your face. That's satanic. God doesn't make things ugly. God makes things beautiful. Satan makes things ugly in order to depress you, in order to get you feeling like there's no hope, in order to get you to give up. Now, I've said many times, and I've been saying for quite a while, the United States is a mess right now. In fact, 
I haven't watched it, but apparently there's a new Top Gun movie out. And it's apparently just going bonkers at the box office because it is very much in the same spirit of the original Top Gun. And somebody said, the America of that movie doesn't exist anymore. Now we have an America that's sort of dedicated to ugly. Well, you don't have to be. You don't have to be dedicated to ugly. You don't have to be captured by ugly. Being in this world outside of the garden, we're here for a reason. Just like Adam came into this world outside of the garden for a reason, Christ came into the world outside of the garden for a reason. And the fact that we're still here indicates that that reason still exists. Now, Messiah is going to come back a second time. He says so. Promises. Don't know when. I sort of think it's going to be on Rosh Hashanah, but that's not anything that I am uh, privy to. I'm not sure which Rosh Hashanah you understand, but that's what I think. So what he wants us to be doing is several things. First off, he wants us to be looking at those people who have been captured by ugliness and decay and death. And there's lots of them out there. They are the ones that are flooding the media right now. Look at those people. They're angry. They're bitter. They're hopeless. They need to be redeemed. They need to be brought into the kingdom. They need to be shown the love that both Adam and Messiah exhibited when they chose to come into this place of decay and death. Decay, death, and beauty. Because all of those things are in this place. And people who have been blinded to the beauty and focusing on the ugly, they need to be told about the Messiah. Now, how do you avoid getting captured by the ugly? Because it's really, really easy looking around to get depressed, to figure that, no, no hope. The only thing that's going to ever save us is when Messiah returns. And don't get me wrong, that's going to be a good deal. But that's up to him, not up to you. You've got stuff to do in the meantime. The weapon that you have to work with is joy. And interestingly enough, God commands joy. Now, I've done this before many, many times. Some of you are new. And the question is, how do you command somebody to be happy? Well, you can't, because joy is not happiness. You can tell. They're spelled differently. Two different concepts. Joy is a state of being. Happiness is an emotion. And emotions are wonderful. Use them myself sometimes. So, emotions are wonderful, but they're transitory. The example I would use is a woman in childbearing. Really, really hard, and then all of a sudden everything switches in joy when you have this new child that's come into the world. And then when the little sucker sticks a fork in the socket, it goes the other way. Emotions are transitory. I used to be a pilot. One of the things that I got told is don't ever chase your instruments. Your instruments are to tell you what the status of the aircraft is. Don't chase them. Put the airplane where you want it, and the instruments will tell you it's there. 
emotions are the same thing. They tell you all sorts of stuff about what's going on under the hood, but you don't chase it. Joy is different. And joy is brought about by understanding your relationship to God and understanding the place he has put you and recognizing that he loves you. Remember, I started out by saying God loves people. He likes to count each one of them. He likes to know their names. He has them troop up one at a time and present their gifts individually because he likes us. That's your source of joy. Your emotions will go sideways. Stuff happens, to tone down an old phrase, and it certainly does. This is a place where there is decay, death, and ugliness in addition to the beauty. And as you're wandering through this, you're going to get mud on your shoes. We all do. You're going to become angry. You're going to become unhappy. Let me give you an example. Elijah. He goes up to Mount Carmel and slaughters some 500 prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel says, you're going to be next. And after having done that, he panics and runs all the way to Sinai, 40 days with no food, and he gets up into the cave, and he says, Oh, God, take my life. I'm all that's left. His emotions are just going inside. This is a man of God, right? This is a guy that can call down fire from heaven. This is a guy that can stop it from raining. And you oh, my God, just take me. It's over. So the fact that you have those little emotional storms doesn't mean that you're out of God's will, doesn't mean that you are toast. It simply means you're having an emotional storm. Move on. But understand in all of that that God loves you because God talked to his prophet in the midst of all of that and then pats him on the butt and sends him back and says, all right, now go back and find the next prophet and anoint him, and I'll pull you up into the overhead. So the fact that God loved Elijah, delighted in Elijah, was not canceled by this emotional storm that he went through. And your emotional storms don't cancel God's love for you either. And he knows all about us. He's not surprised when you have one of these little emotional storms. So, as you go out, always keep in the back of your mind that despite all of the ugliness around you, despite all of the emotional negativity around you, despite the fact that Satan is doing his best to get you off of your joy, and that's what all this ugliness is about, by the way, That's what all this stuff is, to get you to forget the joy and get enmeshed and wallowing in the fallenness of people around you. In other words, it's trying to get you captured. Don't fall for it. Either enjoy or don't enjoy the emotions that you have, but recognize that that's not joy. Joy comes from love. Joy is peace in action. Peace is joy at rest. Two sides of the same coin. And if you can keep that in mind, 
a whole lot of this other stuff you will recognize it may be important, but it isn't the thing that determines what you're going to do next. The thing that determines what you're going to do is the joy that you have at the love of God. So, rejoice. That's a commandment. Let us shine.